here we are today at Cisco Live to discuss uh, navigating the cloud journey. With me today, I have it from Micron. Do you want to do a brief introduction? Yeah, thank you, Steve. I'm Nick. Uh, I'm the cybersecurity engineering and operations head at Micron Technology. Been working with the front for almost last 15 years. Did a lot of revolution and transformation in the digital security space. And one of the most recent one has been a cloud security journey that we have picked up. And very excited for this work. My name is Stephen Goodrow. I'm the cloud security evangelist here at Gigalon. I have almost 30 years experience in IT networking. I did 11 years on and off at Tipping Point Trend Micro, where I had access to over 100,000 true positive PCAPs. And I got to do a lot of playing with tax and, and exploits. So with the cloud journey, and this is a pretty uh, network-centric cloud, I wanted to just do a brief overview of virtualization because I find that that mirrors the journey to the cloud very well. So at first, it starts with the business. And say, hypothetically, you want to know how many days off employees took. Well, before computers, you'd have to count all the slips of paper that were stored in the drawer somewhere. Once computers come along, you have to go get a computer, find space, put software on it. And then you could run the command to figure out. Along comes virtualization. You can put many computers into one, and you can log in and check it. The cloud then allows you to lift all of that into the cloud. And once containers and serverless comes along, you don't even need that anymore. You're not even emulating the operating system. You just need the database query and the data source. So when we discuss the cloud journey, you're usually probably somewhere along that. And has that mirrored your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a traditional versus a cloud native approach that has been picked by most of the organizations, and ours was not a different journey. You know, if you have to look from a traditional environment perspective, it's been monolithic and IT coupled infrastructures requirements that have been for the traditional data centers, but that's the beauty of the cloud is you can scale up in and out, scale up and down, and it's really a giant bank of methodology that has been picked by clouds. Now, when it comes to the the necessity of what kind of approach has to be taken in traditional data centers was used to be more peak capacity models. Selection was done right from the beginning. So heavy investment of front was probably the four requirements. With the cloud journey that we adopted to worst was use the forecasted model, have the right billing access controls towards those forecasted models, and then pick the right compute relational models with the agile development that is made across with different teams and a strong collaboration between the DevOps and DevSecOps. Right. What you had to do is you had to account for the stampeding herd, the rush hour. And if you were to take that approach to the cloud, you're probably going to have a lot of cost overruns and headaches, right? Because you should grow east-west, not tall, right? Grow wide, not tall. So depending on where you are on that journey, you probably have a multi-cloud situation. And multi-cloud can mean a number of things. It could be an on-prem, it could mean a private cloud, which is basically virtualized on-prem, or the public cloud. And one of the key differentiators I like to point out in the public cloud piece, there's no layer one, no layer two, and most of layer three has been abstracted away from you. So some of your tools that you're taking the public cloud may not work or may not translate well. Have you had any experience with some of your tools that did not translate well in a hybrid or public cloud environment? Well, definitely, you know, in an environment where latency is probably the key selection, there are some applications which are very latency sensitive. For manufacturing plant, robot arm needs to know within a certain amount of time what to Exactly, exactly. So 
those which has to run re in real time, probably those applications are where you have to still be running in your either private cloud infrastructures okay. within your premises, but you should be able to run in like container serverless kind of a fabric. But at the same time, you still need necessity for running high compute analytics, taking the right actions from the amount of data that is getting ingested in your storage accounts, in your cloud to grow your data, and then produce the right analytics out of it. That's where your requirement is on the public cloud platform as well. So the way we see it is that private cloud is probably more of a scalable solution, which is container driven, right. where you can define your applications which are more core and sensitive from a latency perspective, but you can pretty much migrate most of your lift and shift or your refactoring or redesigning of your applications into the public cloud as well. Now, to answer on the multi-cloud, yes, we pick up a multi-cloud journey. We have to be agnostic of what cloud platforms we are using because we have to present that flexibility to our end users as well. Because you might find certain things very convincing in one versus the other. The features, compute, networking, storage, and the amount of past services that are being grown up across these cloud platforms have been tremendous. So you have to provide a flexible platform for your end users in order to get the advantage of the kind of services that you want to have them. So kind of what I'm hearing then from a manufacturing standpoint, you're probably going to keep some things private cloud forever for latency reasons. But for other things that aren't necessarily as latency driven, we could explore a public cloud scenario for deployment or expansion. So it's kind of a particular use case where some use cases will override anything that cloud provider offers. And in this case, the manufacturing machines need uh, below a certain level of latency that you feel you can guarantee more easily in the private cloud. Correct. And you have to pick up a hybrid cloud approach at the end of the day to make sure what is being catering to your organization as a requirement. Not necessarily you have to jump to the public cloud because it's an offering that's available to everyone. You have to still be very considered of the right calculations and measurements across your different industry requirements. So let's talk about some of the operators that we have. So we have the classic NetOps, right? And then we have security ops, DevOps, DevSecOps, and they all have some very different goals and they don't necessarily speak the same language. I've seen cloud ops and NetOps in the same room speaking the same words and they come out of it with two completely different understandings, right? So NetOps has to keep the network running at all costs. Security ops may tear the network down to save it. And DevOps, their goal is they got to publish their software every day with or without any level of known or unknown risk. So they'll accept any level of unknown risk as long as they're getting their software pushed out every day. How have you dealt with that in your cloud journey? Yeah, so it has always been a challenge to start from DevOps versus DevSecOps platforms. So both start on the different side of the spectrum. The DevOps is more about the agility of how to run fast and get their development done as quick as possible. And for the SecOps has always been how to secure with a deny kind of a thing. Shift right. Shift right. So now what you have done is there is a lot of awareness and training that has got accumulated with the DevOps. 
They've been trained on what is required for them to do the right kind of development using Terraform or policies or Lambda scripts. With the SecOps model, I think what they are trying to get into is they still are very responsible for the guardrails around the IaaS or PaaS or SaaS services where they are supposed to be. They're still very valuable for the core business. Defining that security around the specific kind of service functions or control functions that are required for a framework. So eventually what we'll see is we'll see a collaboration or cross-breeding between the two groups where DevOps will start to have more awareness and training on how do I secure. It's kind of becoming a program module within their entire curriculum. Well, SecOps is learning a little bit of DevOps, but they will not be ready to release their tires can sit around the security core functions. Well, I think it's impossible for any one group to know it all. And I worked in QA for years, and this is a very, very familiar story, which is teach the developers some best practices and input validation. Don't leave your password as an admin. So this seems to be a very old story being reinvented itself. And while I think it would be nice to have DevOps always do that, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. It's going to be a journey. Because as new graduates come along, they have to learn the old rules again. And every few years of cybersecurity, you see the same exact same problems pop up over and over again. So I, I think it's made up to us putting in guardrails so they could stop doing that. So what is your take on that? Absolutely. And I think what's very important is also with these kind of establishment also comes the right amount of cloud security governance model that defines the right delegation, segregation of duties, and the right amount of focus. Let's assume you have the cloud security governance model for your organization. What are the underlying foundation for it? Architecture creates a very important necessity for it. But when I say architecture, it includes a lot of things, your service level agreements, your contracts, your risk. And then comes the next aspect is of the data workflows, where you do a lot of data access, data validation, data testing data reviews, and then comes your operating model. Operating model is mostly around your roles, negative or positive role approaches. And then comes your cost controls as well, where you have to define the right billing access controls, automated budgetary actions, because cloud is not coming for cheap, right? So everything from a core foundation of cloud security governance models has to be really, really well rehearsed and learned between the individual roles either for the DevOps or the network engineers or the security admins or for the architects or for the business. Everybody should play a very vital role in defining that entire enterprise architecture level view of getting the cloud security governance model created. It, it seems to me that that's something management is going to have to step in and do to try to break some of those mindsets and silos, right? Because each group still wants to fix the thing they're responsible for, and they don't always have the bigger picture. So I want to discuss something you brought up, and, and that's the underlying cloud infrastructure. Because I still think that there's a serious challenge we have in the industry today, because as we grow, it becomes apparent the old way of doing things doesn't really work. And one of the things I've seen is logging and some of the cloud-native services. We make assumptions on how things work based off RFCs are written a long time ago, but nothing's really enforcing that. So we're seeing an ever-increasing level of sophisticated threat actors or DevOps or network people using application protocols that are just possible to detect 
from traditional lobbying alone, or they're using non-standard ports to evade that altogether. And it's been my experience, most cloud tools don't work if you deviate off of the standard port. What's been your experience with that? I think, like we said, in cybersecurity space, as long as you're able to detect and monitor, that's your core of making any strategy. So detection, logging is absolutely one of the important requirements in the business where you can take sufficient action. Now, coming back to how do we do it in the cloud, deep observability is something that we have to identify with the right platforms that are being defined to get you the design outcomes. So getting that east to west visibility, extremely important. I know that everyone can do the north to south kind of a visibility and can define the right automated response actions. I think the necessity is now for solutions like where Gigamon and others come into picking up the ability to get the application contextual driven outcomes based on the logging that gives you that east to west visibility, but also gives you a capability to feed it to your security appliances, your platforms that can take more directive actions on controlling the threats landscape, right? So if you don't have the sufficient logging, we are going to miss big time in the presence of how do we define the enterprise level of detection and preventative actions in the future. So it's been my observation that security vendors are focused on something very, very different. They're looking at stopping the shell shot, the hard lead, the class that are in flight. But when they're not necessarily looking at is some of the applications protocols that are in use every day. Um, it's, it's really about to tell the difference between SMG version one that you agree to logging alone. So there's a sixth advisory that you should be turning off uh, SMG version one and two. But I look at the Wizards Power document, it's a single line. If you only turn off with a single line, that also means it can be turned on with a single line, right? It's possible if you compromise the machine, get in, then turn on SMB version one, you can compromise and elevate your privileges even more. And I think just knowing what's out there is a huge gap we have. And here at Cisco Live, talking to people on the floor, there seems to be a general consensus that logging hasn't existed for the last 20 years. It isn't meeting the needs anymore. And something needs to come in to, to fix that on the next level. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, I think, as you said, logs are just logs, right? But how do you get more intelligent and smart actions out of these logs? And that's what I was going to the application profiling. There has to be a better way of analyzing these logs that can translate into a better way of taking actionable outcomes. The businesses are driving their technology-enabled outcomes based on the right kind of analytics. And I think the basis for that is logs. Now, in order to identify threats, and take proper action on it, you need to identify those applications. So the service of use, port of use, and all those things. So you have several features of packet slicing and other application context. So you have the right way of making the right selection from a logging perspective. You have to be very agnostic of what is the application that is really, really important for you from a logging perspective. You can have data level, you can have system level, you can have application level, you can have network level of loggings all coming across, but you have to really define what is really critical for an organization. Not everything relevant makes a significant use case for your incident response actions or some other actions for your cyber set activities. So you have to be really cognizant of what really is important in an organization and 
how intelligently can you do some of these kind of filtering of the right amount of logging that's been required. And I think that's a major gap, technology gap today. We're seeing more and more vendors like on coming back and giving more valuable attributes and metadata into the feeds that helps us to take better automated response and actions. So we have the paradox having not enough information at the same time. So it kind of sounds like we may not have the right information. And maybe a little bit of baselining is appropriate for a particular organization. Also, the security landscape has changed. You were telling me a story about RDP, how in the past, if you saw RDP, you wouldn't really care about it. But today, actually, that's probably a much bigger problem. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think if we go back almost 10, 15 years back, we were looking at traditional way of looking at signatures, right? Where you used to look at the metadata and the signatures for a specific session around RDP, where you would rather focus on more on the critical and high severity of the actionable and the likelihood of having an exploit tag with an RDP session. But now as the industry is going into the zero trust kind of a platforms, I think more than external threats, insider threats are becoming more and more important. And that's where having those individual transactions to track down the insider threats and correlating it with the perspective of what you can leave or what can you lose from a data perspective and what would be outcomes that define the zero trust model from an access perspective, from a role perspective, from an application access perspective. I was taking an example of RDB as a general user might not need access into your most sophisticated or sensitive environments, but that now has tremendously changed in the zero trust platforms where you have to be really agnostic of your selection of the application access granted based on the rules. Well, I think what Zero Trust is doing is it's giving voice to something we've had a hard time putting our finger on, and that's a lot of threat actors are using legitimate software, legitimate protocols that are built in, baked into the workload, uh, and they're just using them for bad things. So if you can't see it happening, I think we fixate a little too much on the high severity of CPEs, or other high impact threats, and a lot of threat actors will use the medium level and then use legitimate applications. So <clears throat> I worked in cybersecurity for years, and there's always a rush to patch the high level CVEs, but are those really the ones most exploited? Right? But when we look at some of the CISA advisories that came out recently, Bolt's Typhoon, a Chinese state threat actor that's selling proxies on Windows and Shoes. So any inbound traffic on port 9999 get reflected back out onto the private class ID address on port, I believe it was 8334. If you're looking at a lot, you're like, wow, a lot of weird traffic on 9999. Okay, weird, but not a big deal. If you actually can see the application's protocols and use, you're going to say, wait, I've got CLF. I've got SSH, I've got ES, all on 9999. All of a sudden, that light is like lighting a signal wire for detection, right? When before, again, you have the paradox of too much data and not enough data. So I wanted to talk about something very interesting that may be important to our people are going to the cloud, and that's discuss some of the cost models and maybe some ways to dial that in. Because if you actually set up a recursive search, in one-year cloud workloads, you're going to pay a lot on extra compute costs. So with that, have to that. Well, you've got to have some kind of a smart analytical tools around the cost analysis that has to be integrated in your budgeting forecast 
trends as well. Back were the days when you used to do your annual forecasts or annual budgetary decisions. But with the cloud, because it's such a dynamic state, you have to pick up weekly. And now even some people are doing daily kind of a forecasting trends. So you've got to have a really strong look on how your compute networking and storage in the cloud has been utilized over a period of time. And what is your next forecast trends? Now, you can use a lot of uh, analytical tools integrated with strong platforms and cloud providers like Azure, AWS, and GCP that gives you very strong indicators on how the cost has to be done. Additional things has to be done in the cloud is you have to define who has the access to deploy, who has the ability to control, and who has the ability to take action, monitor the cloud growth, and remediate these unused deployments. So there is going to be a, a strong watch list that has to be created over a period of time. And then that's a challenge and that's a journey because you're never going to reach like a Nirvana end state on that. And, you know, as someone who's supporting their cloud manually, it can be very frustrating for some passes because you wait 30 minutes for a deploy and errors out, you make a change, you redeploy, you wait 31 minutes, right? And errors out, you make the other change. And after a couple hours, you're like, you know what? I'm just going to open it all up, open up all the permissions, and then it works. And once it's working, you forget to go close all the extra permissions you had opened up. So is that kind of a problem here you're seeing in some of your cloud deployments? Because I know I'm guilty of it. Well, we picked up a route of, you know, audit, remediate, and deny. So for us, the challenge was that how do we pick up a service that has to be really, really important for an organization? Basically, whitelisting of the services, right? So when you do that, what you do is you define your guardrails really successfully around each service. Don't present your service, just be available for the end users in the marketplace. Right. Run them through your own Terraforms or do your own service controls around these IaaS and PaaS services that are available with each of these CSPs. One more thing that has to be really, really important to it was coming to the cloud cost was you have to understand the billing access controls as well. You also have to define your forecast in terms of the consumption of the security enhancements that are being done. You have to calculate the weightage of the risk that's associated with the service versus the compute. And I think you have to start embracing a lot of cloud native security technologies and some of the cloud security posture management but also start adding a lot of compliance trends as well, because that's going to help you drive, not from a cost perspective, but bring your security to an ecosystem or eco-platform of having the right decisions to make. So I'm personally really excited about the new DOD trust model for 152 controls, because we're finally coming out with something actionable. And I think that's going to eventually be one of those strongest zero trust models that survives because it's actually giving people a, a roadmap of what to do. So as we're in the, the closing minutes, do you have anything out of compromise or that you'd like to share? Zero trust. Zero trust is probably a thing which is very specific to every organization. It can mean different things to different organizations. Like for us, it might mean something else. For a financial, it might mean uh, something else. But at the end of the day, when you have to start for a zero trust journey, you have to start with something that you really want to do for that organization, like blueprinting. A blueprint should exist for you, and a forecast and a strategy and a program should exist for you to even start and pick up that journey. If you don't have a program, if you don't have a charter, 
where do you want and what's important for you as a zero trust? I think that's where is the importance lies. Like for us, securing our IP is probably one of the most important thing. So we have to pick up our journey in the zero trust with the mindset what we really want to do across. And for that, the guardrails, whether in the private cloud, public cloud, with the right amount of observability and the detection and monitoring has to be really critical. And I think in certain sectors, especially in that space, you no longer have to sell them on it. They're just trying to figure out how to operationalize it. So I'm glad we had this conversation. Thank you, everybody, for attending. Thank you. Thank you, guys.